after the diverse speakers of the morning session, it's good to have uh, somebody from the fold back here, Mark Randall, uh, has a degree in actuarial science from the University of Pretoria. Welcome, Mark. Um, Mark works at the JSE. He's the manager of indices. He's been in that capacity since 2010. He's responsible for equity and bond indices, but the focus of his discussion today will be only one of those two. Um, his role entails both the operational as well as the research aspects um, regarding the, the equity and bond indices. So, very well-placed individual to come and share with us the developments around the bond indices and other JSE developments. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much, and I'm uh, very grateful and excited to be here. So I think after this morning's two sessions, my, my session's probably going to be a little bit more mundane. So I hope you'll bear with me and, and not mind the change of pace too much. Um, but I think that one of the, the very important factors of a healthy um, financial market, whatever the instrument or asset class is, is a functioning set of indices. And I'm not talking here about e even smart beta or satellite approaches or anything like that, just a very basic core market benchmark index is something that we take for granted in pretty much all the asset classes that we work in. So we can look at the, our all share index or our all bond index or whatever other index you're using across the world. And this, it's a, it's a bit of an oddity to come across an asset class that doesn't have one. Um, and this is something that my team's been working on for a while um, at, at the JC listed bond space. And that is really a, a functional market benchmark for credit bonds or corporate bonds. So we do have a benchmark for our, our all bond index, which is heavily dominated by RSA issue bonds. Um, and we've been looking at the feasibility of launching something that only includes credits. So the first question, obviously, there we go, is does the remote work? The second question is what exactly is a credit bond? Um, because when you get into index construction, it's very important that our rules are very specific and very detailed. Um, and the definition for us is very, very simple. We say if there is no explicit guarantee by the Republic of South Africa, then we will classify it as a corporate bond or credit bond. Um, so who does that cut out of our investment world? And that's uh, the big players, obviously, is the RSA bonds, ESCOM, uh, some of the Sandroll bonds, and then one or two other minor players. And that leaves us with the world of bonds, about uh, 1,300 or so. Um, that we would classify as credit. And this is really the universe that we would look at for the purposes of this index to see um, is this going to be feasible. So if you look how this market has developed over the past 10 years or so, um, it's very interesting to look at uh, the development, and this is in terms of issued amount, so total uh, nominal amount issued of bonds. And I've just cut it into two worlds, uh, fixed rate notes and floating rate notes, um, most of those linked to Jibor. And you'll see there that the red line is the fixed rate world and the, the blue bars are floating rate. And you'll see over time how the total market size has changed. Um, very interesting to see the uptake in floating rate notes. And you'll see post 2008, 2009, the fixed rate notes have come down dramatically and tend to level off since then. If we look at the same numbers in terms of number of issuers and number of instruments, it tells a very, very similar story. So the bars in this case are the number of actual instruments um, and the line is the number of issuers. Um, obviously, some issuers issue more than one note. Um, so you'll see the discrepancy there. And again, the red bar in terms of fixed notes relatively flat since 2009, and the blue bar showing a steady increase in terms of number of issues. So we think this is a, a market, um, and, and it's obviously not our, its own problems, and I'll speak a bit about liquidity, um, but we think it's a market that is uh, quite, a, quite significant, at least in the South African space, um, and in that case, there may be some value in a benchmark that measures it. All right, so like any, any good model, um, an index starts with some simplifying assumptions. Um, 
we like our index constituents to be as homogenous as possible. Obviously, we want them to be representative of the underlying investable universe, if you like. Um, and so there's a set of standard assumptions that we would apply to these indices just to sort of taper down those 1,300 bonds into something a little bit more homogenous. First of all, in terms of fixed coupons, we'd only look at semi-annual or, or zero-rate um, bonds. Floating coupons, we'd look at quarterly. Uh, term to maturity, we want more than a year, so we'd like to cut out all the money market instruments, so you're only really looking at a bond index. Uh, listed for at least two months, we want there to be a bit of trading history. Uh, minimum size, very, very small, 100 million rand in terms of clean market cap. Anything less than that, we wouldn't even consider for our index, just as a, a minimum hurdle. And finally, no credit-linked notes, uh, because we feel they don't fit into an index of this nature. What it does include very specifically is um, securitizations and asset-backed securities, so we've decided to leave those in the index because we feel even though there's obviously very limited liquidity, they do form part of the investable universe, and they do tend to fit with other two classes, fixed and floating, respectively. So that is our, our set of eligibility criteria. Uh, what does that look like? So that brings us down to universe uh, fixed and floating rate. Um, 127 fixed rate bonds at the moment. This is data as at the end of April. Um, obviously, it changes from time to time. There's new issues coming in and out. Uh, floating rate notes 252, so far more notes in the floating rate space. However, in terms of issued amount, the two markets tend to be pretty much the same size. Um, so 160 billion rand, give or take, between them um, each. I've also put in the monthly um, average traded value. Um, that's clean consideration in the final column, just to give you a sense of the size of the market. And I think one of the key characteristics of this market, very specifically, is that there's very, very little liquidity. Um, so it's very difficult to get in and out of the market. We see some bonds that don't trade at all, um, and the trading on other bonds is particularly thin. All right, so let's dig into that data a little bit more just to get an understanding of, of what kind of notes we're dealing with here. And the first way we would cut up our universe is by issuer class. Um, in index terms, we've decided to go with four broad categories. There are obviously many ways you could do this, um, and there's a, a fine balance between getting a large number of um, categories and a smaller number that, that makes a bit more sense and is more manageable. We've gone with these four. Um, so the dark blue in this case is corporates um, that are financially based. The green on the screen is also corporates, but non-financial. The red is state-owned enterprises. Um, obviously, these are ones that don't have an explicit government guarantee. Um, a lot of that is Transnet. There's a bit of Sandal in there, a few others. And then finally, we decided to carve out securitizations or asset-backed securities um, into a separate issue class category, and that's represented by the light blue, obviously far more pertinent in the floating rate space than the fixed rate space. Another way we can look at our world, uh, sorry, the relative weights, they are just based by issue size, um, and that would tie back to the previous slide. Another way we'd look at bonds in particular is duration. Um, very, very important in terms of, of how we look at these instruments, in terms of matching them um, to liability profiles. And uh, as a simplification, we would generally just look at term to maturity in terms of definition of, of term buckets. So in our floating rates, uh, sorry, in our fixed rate space, we've defined four term buckets. Um, one to three year, three to seven year, um, seven to 12 and 12 and above. Um, and that is just the distribution of how our bonds, the 160 billion, are distributed across those term splits. In the floating rate space, we tend to see a very different profile because most of the rate notes are far shorter term. Um, so our normal one to three years, three to seven split wouldn't work in the scenario. So we've created much smaller term splits just to capture all of those notes. All right, so that really is, is the universe that we have to play with. Um, I think it's big enough to make an index. The question is, what do we put into our index and how do we measure it? Um, and this is the process that we'd go to. We start with um, everything that's listed. We then cut it down into, through some eligibility rules. 
And then we would look at two different types of indices, a representative index, which is really just an overall market barometer, um, useful for, for measuring the performance of the market, but very little else. Um, and then I'll spend some time at the end of the session about the practicality of a replicable or tradable index um, and what are the, the pros and cons of that in the credit space. So let's move on to the representative index. Um, I, I think we, what, what we've decided to do with here is we have a, a methodology that we're happy with that we're using for our all bond index, the Orbi, as well as our um, inflation-linked bond index that we currently publish. So it made a lot of sense to us to see if we could just take that methodology and apply it to a different universe, given that uh, most of our practitioners in that small space would at least be familiar with the rules. And, and that's really the concept that we're going with, to pick up the methodology and just apply it to a different universe. So the way the Orbi methodology works is that it's a total return calculation. So it assumes that coupons are reinvested um, at the prevailing yields of the portfolio. Um, what's also important is that the index itself is market cap weighted. So bonds with a larger market capitalization would have a bigger weight in the index. I think that causes its own problems, and I'm not going to get into a debate today about, about the pros and cons of cap-weighted indices. Um, I think if you consider traditionally they were created as a, I suppose, a measure of aggregate investor holdings in the market, that would still be true. Um, however, it does tend to um, overweight companies with very high levels of debt um, because they are weighted by market cap. But again, I'll speak a bit about that, especially when we get to replicability and concentration. So the point of our representative indices is a benchmark for the entire market. Um, and our basis here is to have 95% coverage of that market um, of our legible universe. There is no liquidity screen, so bonds are in the index that do not trade, um, and we acknowledge that. Uh, we've separated fixed and floating rate indices. Um, so there's a separate index for fixed and floating. Obviously, there are a lot of issues that are common between the two indices. Um, so you could ask the question, should there not be a single index that captures all credits? Um, generally speaking, from what we've seen globally, is that the indices tend to be created on the same kind of coupon structures. Um, and then the issuer class and term splits that I will explain about the entire market, we will create sub-indices for these indices uh, based on those standard issuer class and term splits. So why 95%? Um, so if there, you know, if there are relatively few bonds, why not include all of them in the index? And, and this is really one where we look at the sort of the parsimony of the structure to say, is there a way to reduce the administration burden, I guess, of, of following these indices and at the same time capture a reasonable portion of the market? So this graph, really, the, the single bars represent individual issuers and their total market cap size. Um, on the far left is, is Transnet. This is the fixed rate space. And then obviously it, it drops off pretty rapidly. Given that the indices are market cap weighted, issuers of very small market caps would obviously have a very small weighting in the index and tend to have a very small contribution to index performance. So the dark blue line is just the cumulative line, and you'll see where it crosses 95%. Um, that's the, line, the number that we've picked as a, as a fair representation um, of the market. And you'll see that we do include most of the issuers. And if I move to the next slide, you'll see what that representation is. So this is just in numbers. Uh, what proportion of our total eligible universe would we capture with an index of this nature? Um, in the fixed rate space, we would, what's very interesting, obviously 95% of the market cap we would capture. But if you look at the number of bonds we would capture and the number of issuers, you do see that possible money effect coming through. So instead of the 45 eligible issuers, we would only put 26 into the index, a massive reduction. Um, you may ask, why do we look at issuers and not at instruments individually? Um, particularly in the credit space, if you're doing any kind of credit risk analysis, uh, you'd probably be doing that on an issuer-by-issuer -issue basis. So our view is if you can cut um, you know, 40% of the issuers out of that universe, then that simplifies the, the work dramatically. 
Um, in terms of turnover, on the last column, we're still capturing over 90% of the turnover of the market. I think 97% in the fixed rate and 93% in the floating rate space. So we believe with the structure we are capturing the majority both of bonds, um, market cap, and turnover. All right, so um, in this case, we have gone with the all-in market capitalization. Um, sorry, the original slides were an issued amount. Um, so this was at the end of April, the all-in price times the issued amount. There are also no credit rating screens that we apply. Um, I think credit ratings is another thing that we could spend a whole session on. Um, but credit ratings are not supplied by the JC. They're obviously credit rating agencies that would provide those for us or provide those to the market. Um, different agencies would have different views on things. Um, our view is that we want our benchmark to capture the whole market and we would leave the credit rating and credit risk analysis to the individual users of the index. All right. If we then move on to our replicable indices. So I, I, I think really the, the concept of a cap-weighted benchmark is, is a pretty standard one. Um, so this is something that we'll probably be moving forward with. Um, when we get to the replicable world, it, it's, a, it's a very different discussion. So what I'm going to start on is I'm going to start with the, the methodology that we're proposing, the what at least, or the how. And at the end, I'm going to go through a little bit about the why and whether or not this is a good idea and what kind of impact could it have um, on the way that people are working in the credit market. So starting on the rules themselves, um, obviously, if we want an index to be tradable, um, it needs to be replicable. There needs to be some sort of liquidity con consideration. Um, the liquidity that we use is a relative one, so we're going to um, do that based on a ranking, and I'm going to show you how that ranking would work. Um, we look at a top in, top in index, again, one for fixed and one for floating, and I've run numbers both for a top 20 and a top 30, um, that I'll show you the results of that. When we look at our ranking, um, we look at a dual ranking methodology, and this is the same way that our current all-bond index works. It's also coincidentally the same way that our top 40 equity index used to work, up until around about 2002 when we partnered with FTSE. Um, so it is a methodology that is, has some traction in the South African market. And basically we rank on two vectors. We look at the size of each instrument as well as the total turnover of each instrument and that we do over a, a rolling 12-month period. The index would get reviewed once a quarter and we'd set the constituents for the next quarter going forward. There are also some very specific concentration problems. Um, so what we find is that the bigger issuers tend to have a lot of instruments that they issue. So as soon as you have a top 20 index, you run the risk that an individual issuer may have five or 10 or however many individual instruments in that index, which tends to crowd out the rest of the issuers. Um, so we combat that in two ways. The first way is to put a hard cap on the number of instruments that are included from one particular issuer. Um, at the moment, the numbers at the end of April, both on a top 20 and a top 30 basis, there aren't any issues that hit this cap. So it's more to sort of future-proof the index to say if a, a company like Transit tends to issue a lot of instruments over time, we wouldn't want the index to be completely dominated by those. So there's a hard cap of five. And secondly, we would put an individual weighting cap at an issuer level on the index. Um, at the moment, we're looking at a 15% number. Where we originally started with the 20%, which we feel is maybe a little bit high. Um, and this sort of ties into to common diversification or concentration problems that we have, um, exposure to single kind of parties, that sort of thing. All right, so let's talk about this dual ranking. And the first thing I want to talk about is the liquidity screen. Um, so what do we mean when you say the average liquidity of, a, of an instrument? Um, what I've done here is I've picked up a single one, although quite an extreme example, the bond SPS24, which was listed in 2012. It's a floating rate note. And all I've given you here is the monthly uh, turnover, and in this case we've measured it by clean consideration over every calendar month um, for standard trades, so excluding repos. And I've given you the monthly numbers for the past 12 months. 
Now, what's very interesting is when we rank this bond on an average basis, so average monthly turnover, um, it is the most liquid bond in our market in terms of the credit space. However, when we rank it on a median basis, obviously you can see it's very asymmetrical. It is the least liquid bond in our credit space. So it's very, you need to be very careful when you include bonds based on liquidity to say what exactly are we using as the liquidity measure. Um, we believe it's, it's more appropriate to use the median measure in this scenario um, because they're based on certain patterns as the duration of bonds change, um, as portfolios change, we tend to see very large spikes in individual bonds and we wouldn't want that to influence our index selection because it's not necessarily replicable or achievable by market participants. Um, so our approach is to use the median monthly turnover and sort of average, again looking back over the past 12 months. How does that rank work in principle? Um, so we now have these two numbers for each instrument. We have a, your, your relative position in terms of liquidity of the past 12 months, your relative position in terms of size of the past 12 months. Um, the liquidity is on the x-axis here, and the size is on the y-axis, the issued amount. Um, you'll see the, the bright blue line at the end at roundabout rank 77. Those are all the bonds that have a zero median liquidity. So in other words, 50% um, of the last 12 months, they did not trade at all, um, and they all ranked lost. All right, so in terms of the dual ranking, our methodology is to effectively take the maximum of the two ranks, so the worst case of the two vectors. Um, and you'll see in the top 30 scenario there that I've drawn a box around the 30 company, or the 30 instruments at least that would fall into a top 30 index based on that dual ranking. What's interesting, obviously, is when you start looking at the outliers, the people that, um, the instruments that didn't make it into the index, although you may imagine they would. So you'll see there's a blue spot there um, that I think is the fourth most liquid bond in the market. But in terms of size, it comes in at about 65 or so, so that bond wouldn't be in the index. And similarly, a very large bond, uh, rank eight or nine, as I recall, um, but doesn't trade at all, liquidity rank 60 would be excluded from the index. All right, so that's just a sense, and this is exactly the same methodology that we're applying in our all index, our all bond index at the moment, and includes government bonds. Um, so it's one that we're quite comfortable with. Just to give you a sense of what we're capturing with these um, replicable indices, and I've run here both a top 30 and a top 20 scenario in the fixed and the floating. Um, I apologize, that bottom table should be called floating rate, not fixed rate. And the eligible universe at the start, that's the number that we started with, and then both for the fixed rate and the floating rate, um, just the size of the issues, the number of bonds and the number of instruments that we're capturing um, using this top 30 and top 20 methodology. Um, so we do see that we're capturing a, a fairly large proportion of the issued amount. Um, what is very interesting, though, is if you look at the number of issues you're capturing, so in a top 30 space, uh, in terms of fixed, you're going from 45 bonds, 45 issues rather, down to 13, and 9 in a top 20. Um, and if you want to base any kind of structured product on an index that only includes 9 issues or 8 issues in the floating rate case, um, you may start looking at some concentration problems. Let me show you what the top 20 index would look like, and here I've just taken the floating rate, um, top 20 example. Um, so again, there are 20 instruments or 20 bonds in this index. However, there are only eight issuers. And you'll see Standard Bank, before we apply any capping, um, it's got five of its bonds in the top 20, um, contributing to a total index weight of 27%, um, which obviously makes the index pretty useless as any kind of replicable device. Um, having said that, it obviously also reflects the most prominent bonds in the investable universe. Um, so it is a true and fair reflection of that. But, but not from an investability point of view. So we then apply a capping algorithm, and you'll see that the standard bank's weight is capped from 27% down to 
um, obviously that extra weight needs to go somewhere. Um, so as a result, all the other constituents are upweighted. Um, and this is an iterative process that we would apply. So after the first round, EBSA and NetBank would have a weight in excess of 15% and we have to cap it again um, and eventually end up with an index where all the constituents are capped at 15%. All right, so that's just a sort of a flash of what the index would look like at the moment on a top 20 basis. Um, I think it's very interesting to talk about why one would want to create a replicable index. And I think generally people would associate an index product or a structured product with a low-cost, diverse investment solution, um, which is certainly how the equity space has panned out and how we see activity in the equity space. Um, Looking at those concentration numbers, um, there's no ways that you can reasonably say that a top 20 bond instrument index would give you a diversified solution. So you run this risk of saying by introducing these indices, are you putting a message out into the market to say this is a diversified cheap solution and we would expect people to make products on that? Our view is absolutely not. Um, I think from the JSC, we're not guiding people to invest in one way or another as the exchange. Um, we do think there is, however, value in an index that measures the most prominent bonds, where you're capturing the vast majority of the liquidity of the turnover activity in the market. However, we're not blind to the fact that people view indices in a very specific way. So if we were to launch an index like this at top 20, it would have to be very clear to people that are using the index how exactly it's constituted and what are the risks and pitfalls that come with that. All right, um, so some of the questions that we're looking at um, in terms of index construction. Um, first and foremost is if we do a replicable index, what will it look like? Should we take a top 20? Should we take a top 30? Um, I, th I think these are the, the parameters that we've narrowed it down to. Um, should it be a 15% or 20%? So we had a market consultation paper that we put out at the start of the year um, that we had some very good feedback from, from, from a large number of participants at least, and very grateful to the investment committee of ASA for that as well, for their inputs on our consultation paper. Um, the second question we're looking at is whether or not the current calculation metrics that we provide are appropriate for a credit index. So at the moment, we calculate the total return index value um, that says this is the, the cumulative impact of the index, the coupons are invested. There are some questions that say, should we calculate rather a credit spread metric that says what is the average credit spread of the index? Um, and I think that, that speaks to one of the more fundamental questions around a credit index that says you're now really trying to measure two risk metrics with a single index. There's, a, there's an interest rate element and there's a credit risk element. Um, and which one is this index going to be used for? All right. Um, and then finally, should we be looking at a combined flex and floating rate index? Um, it's not something we've come across too often. Um, however, if you look at the credit market holistically, there is a, definitely a case to be made that says we should be including these issues in a single metric um, because they obviously all share the same credit risk. Um, so whether it's a floating rate or fixed rate note, is there some kind of holistic number that we can look at? All right, and I believe that I have raced through my whole presentation. So you don't have to rush me. Um, are there any questions? Um, I, I think we, we certainly don't have a liquid market. Um, and I think this is something that the exchange is grappling with at the moment in terms of providing valuations for credit bonds. So one of the principles of the valuations that our, our mark-to-market team provides is that it's, it's certainly a mark-to-market model and not a mark-to-model model. Um, so where there's no trading activity, basically we see that prices for credit bonds tend to become stagnant over time. 
Um, so, so yes, I, so I, I wouldn't say that the market is deep in terms of liquidity. Um, in terms of availability of bonds that are out there to buy, yes, there are all these listed instruments, absolutely. Can you get hold of them in practice? Are they trading every day? Absolutely not. And I, and I think that, that you, know, you know, an index really is just a statistic that says how do we, how do we bubble all of these credit statistics up and put them out into one number. Um, and there's no way that the index itself can make the market more liquid or more accurately priced or better. Um, so the index is really reliant on that data. The, the reality is that there is an issue of concentration. Uh, and that is a, a, a structural element that we have of the listed credit market in South Africa. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, as much as I'd like to make the index, you know, equally weighted or completely diverse or include all these issuers, the reality is we don't have them. Um, now, you know, one would hope that as the, as the market develops and then there's certain aspects of that, an index being one part of a healthy market, one would hope that the activity would increase. Um, but that's a structural financing question rather than a, an index question per se. But yes, we absolutely acknowledge that the issue of concentration is a problem for this benchmark, um, which is why if we wanted to make a prominent bond index, we would want to cap the issues. And it's something that we've been grappling with a lot, um, and, and notwithstanding the fact that it, it's, you know, it's not our data, it is common data that's available to the market. And with our discussions and consultations with most asset managers that, that are currently using, that are playing in the space at least, um, the general view was that credit rating shouldn't be included in the index at all as a factor that as a, as a general benchmark of the investable universe, they would want to see, they would want to have all instruments included in that. So that's something really we've been driven by client comment. Um, so the, the, the question is, it comes down to credit ratings, and should we be creating a separate index for every credit rating, or at least uh, investable versus non-investable? Um, and and I, I think the, the primary answer is that we don't think we should. Um, and that's mostly been driven by client interest, or, or client comment at least. Um, why I think is, is probably a more complicated discussion, and it depends entirely on what you want to use the index for. So if, if you're saying, I want to use the index as a, as a benchmark for aggregate performance, the reality is that the, the pool of listed bonds is the set of aggregate performance. So as a, as a market benchmark index, you'd want to include everything that's investable, or has been invested in. Um, and that's best measured by issued amount across all bonds. Um, if you're looking at, at, at very specific credit interests, or credit ratings at least, um, I, I think the challenge for, for me would be to say, how can we take this data and present it in such a way that anybody who wants to cut it and slice it by various credit ratings or pools of credit ratings should be able to do that very easily. Um, because I would imagine that your specific need for credit rating may be different from another user's and it's very difficult to satisfy all of that without creating 40 or 50, 60 sub-indices. Um, and, and that obviously dilutes the, the interest a bit. Um, so I think that answers some of it, but I, I, it is an open question for us that, that says why is it that people don't want their credit ratings in. And, and this is something where we'll be led by the, the exchange's official pricing valuations. So I, I think there is a sort of a parallel conversation going on at the moment that says how does the JC value credit bonds. Um, I think from an index point of view, we would want to make sure that we are aligned at least, or at least consistent, with the official pricing methodology that the JSC is publishing. So it doesn't make sense to me to say, well, JSC instruments are priced on this basis, 
but the index for the same set of instruments is priced on a different basis. Um, so at, at the moment, most credit bonds are priced on a, on a spread, um, and that spread would only change if there is some kind of pre- or post-trade activity. Um, so if there is no trade activity, um, the spreads may not necessarily reflect the true reflection of what that pricing is. All right, so there's the headline, uh, and in terms of sub-indices, let me start with, with the rows at least first. There'd be the headline index. Um, for each index, we'd publish a set of issuer, issuer class splits, so the financial general asset base, asset backed, and a set of term splits. For each of those, there'd be a total return index, um, which is coupons reinvested on, on receipt date, on pay date. Um, we would then also calculate the average clean price index and average all-in price index. There is a coupon yield that we calculate, um, which is an average of the interest yields of the individual bonds, and there is a, an average gross redemption yield, effectively. So there's an average yield as well that looks at the time, the time structure. So there's a whole host. Uh, and a duration and a convexity, so pretty much the standard metrics. Um, and that would be published both at an index level and a constituent level. Mark, we're a minute or two ahead of schedule. Um, in that time, is there anything else from an index perspective that could be of interest, just in passing, to mention to actuaries in general? <laughs> um, yeah, and, well, maybe I'll just give you a sort of a brief overview of, of what's happening in the equity space as well. Um, I think, obviously, our, our indices in the equity space are far more developed in terms of, of the product offering. So, you know, currently we have all the headline indices, which you're probably familiar with, the, the all share and the top 40, and then the host of sector and subsector indices. Um, we do note that the majority of our clients, at least for benchmarking, are using our SWIX indices, which effectively downweight dual listed companies, really at the, at the crux of it. So what we're launching this year um, is a set of um, sector-weighted SWIX indices. So all of you that are, are doing performance attribution or that sort of thing, that are currently manu manually calculating SWIX valuations, um, we'll be creating a, a, releasing a full set of ICB sector sub-indices on a SWIX basis um, in the benchmark space. In terms of, of strategy indices, we're looking at a few things. So we're doing quite a lot of work on our Dividend Plus Index at the moment, um, which has had quite a lot of retail interest, but we see there are some anomalies in terms of very high churn, very high volatility, some liquidity squeeze, that sort of thing. So we're looking at how to tidy that up. We're also launching a little bit late in the year some minimum variance indices and some risk target indices, which we're hoping will be quite useful for some structured products. So, for example, there's a risk target at 15%, which basically leverages between the top 40 index and cash on a daily basis to try and maintain a fixed um, performance volatility of 15% over time. So we're looking at those sort of um, indices to, to branch out from the traditional you know, equity benchmark space. Um, Obviously, we, we're always open to ideas. So we have an advisory committee that meets once a quarter, of which um, the actual society has a member on that advisory committee. Um, so any ideas you have in terms of indices, you're welcome to forward those either directly to me um, or through the investments committee. I don't know if there are any questions otherwise on generally on JC indices, either equity or bonds. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks.